sitting. We have two cases that are set for oral argument this morning. Uh, counsel, for both cases, you may presume that we have read your briefs carefully and that we understand your arguments and the key case law that you're relying on. If you could incorporate that into your argument, that's fine. Uh, I'm sure the panel will have questions for each of you. So if we want to go ahead and begin, first case is number 21-10806, the state of Texas and the state of Missouri versus Joseph R. Biden Jr. in his official capacity as President of the United States and the other acting defendants, which are all government enti entities or individuals in their official capacities. Counsel, if you'd like to begin. Oh, by the way, we, we uh, issued an order yesterday to expand the time for both sides to a total of 25 minutes. Uh, Counsel, you had previously reserved uh, 16 and four. I understand you're, you would like to now reserve, you still want to reserve four for rebuttal, is that correct? Yes, please, Your Honor. Okay, we'll set your timer at 21. Uh, the lighting system is right in front of you. When the yellow light goes on, you have two minutes, and the red light, when the red light goes on, please finish your sentence and be seated. Uh, on the rebuttal time, you won't get a yellow light. You'll just have your four minutes and then red light will go on. Um, all right, well, let's go ahead and begin. This is uh, Mr. Ward. Good morning. Good morning. May it please the, the court, Brian Ward on behalf of the United States. Your Honors, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and addressing the fact that the government has recently filed a motion to vacate and remand in this case. I know that that was filed just recently and has been briefed over the past couple days, so I know that the court may not have had much time to or any time at all to, to review the briefs there, but that motion is based on some factual developments that have happened in the last week that affect the issues in this case and in the government's view moot plaintiff's uh, claims, and so I want to address it at the outset. Uh, as, as the court knows, the district court issued a decision in this case finding that the Secretary of Homeland Security's June 1st memorandum ending the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP, was arbitrary and capricious. The court found that the, district, uh, that the agency, the Secretary of Homeland Security, did not consider certain factors, uh, did not adequately explain certain other factors, and then based on that finding, specifically remanded to the agency for further proceedings, further consideration. The Secretary of Homeland Security has now... Wait, it also remanded in part because of the violation of the 1225 or whatever that statute is. So there are two prongs to the court's ruling district court's ruling. Yes, Your Honor, but respectfully, those two prongs are intertwined. So one of the things that the district court said was that the Secretary of Homeland Security didn't adequately consider the agency's requirements under Section 8 U.S.C. Section 1225, did not adequately explain in his June 1 memorandum how the agency could end MPP and still comply with the obligations of Section 1225. The Secretary has now done that. He's addressed that at length in the new memorandum, explained how the agency has other options under the statute and how the agency views its statutory and regulatory requirements. Um, that explanation and the agency's interpretation and explanation of a statute and regula regulations it's charged with implementing are entitled to deference. Uh, and that that claim along with, it's intertwined with the other issues under the APA and those should be all considered together in the context of the new memorandum. So we think it's appropriate based on that to remand and allow that claim, the, the challenge to the 
to the june one memorandum based on section twelve twenty five as well as the other claims to be considered in the context of a live issue and the new memorandum addresses that and addresses the other issues counsel imagine a civil case where plaintiff versus defendant um and defendant is ordered to pay a million dollars by the district court and so the plaintiff notices an appeal and says well i don't think i should have to pay the million dollars and the defendant while the appeal is pending says i'd like my million dollars and we would all say well hold on a second you've noticed an appeal that no one owes a million dollars so the appeal's done so help me understand your view of the district court's remand order since you are obviously the one that noticed an appeal of what the district court did i'm not sure i understand the question yet. how can it be remanded to the agency if you've noticed an appeal to our court well the district court specifically remanded it so that and you noticed an appeal because you were unhappy with what the district court did right now here we are right your honor and now that the agency has elected and so we believe that the the june first memorandum was defensible under the apa and could go forward with the appeal but now that the agency has issued a new memorandum uh, it is elected to to go forward and address those issues that the district court has said weren't adequately addressed in the earlier memorandum but let's talk about that so imagine let's do a different civil case so now we have two two neighbors they live in a duplex a unit b unit they have long simmering disagreements as neighbors and so the one neighbor, let's call him defendant, starts playing a trumpet in the middle of the night from 2 to 4 a.m. And so the plaintiff runs to court and gets an injunction against the trumpet. So the defendant says, well, I'm going to stop playing the trumpet and turns to the trombone. Is the, is the trumpet claim moot? Well, again, Your Honor, I think what's different here is that this isn't, the agency hasn't issued a decision saying it's just going, it's trying to moot this by doing something else. By the answer, no, it's not moot. It would depend on on the factual circumstances and whether uh, that's a circumstance where they're never going to play the trumpet again. Here we have a circumstance in which the agency has issued a new memorandum which plaintiffs can challenge. So we're not saying that the issues can't be challenged, that plaintiffs won't have an opportunity to uh, assess the legality of the the October 29th memorandum. I, I expect fully that they would amend their complaint and add their challenges to that. And to the extent that... What if there's then a December 1st memo? Would the October 29 memo become moot? Like, at what point, how many memos and how many motions to stay in abate and how many motions to vacate have to be filed before a court can actually review the agency action? If there's any reason to believe there would be any additional memorandum here, uh, there was one memorandum in June, and that would have been the only memorandum had the district court not identified issues it had with that memorandum. If, and so the, the, the new memorandum is based entirely and solely on the district court's findings under the APA and its remand for the agency to the agency directing it to further consider uh, certain issues. Note that this isn't that different than what happened in the Innovation Law Lab case, where uh, plaintiffs were challenging the implementation of MPP itself. The government issued a new memorandum changing its policies in June, and the Supreme Court found, even though that was action by the government during the course of litigation after it had already been appealed and I believe mostly briefed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court found it was appropriate in that case to uh, remand and vacate for further consideration in light of that new memorandum. How can, so, if the thing that you're asking for on appeal, this is the thing I, I don't understand about the motion to vacate, the thing you noticed an appeal to do is to vacate the district court's injunction. How can it possibly be that you can confess error in the June 1 memo issue a new memo and get the exact same relief you would have otherwise gotten if you had prevailed on the merits appeal, right? It's like when it's heads you win, tails you win, right? It's, it's, I don't understand 
Well, we're not confessing error in the June 1 memorandum. I thought that was the whole point of the October 29 memo, was to say we get it, the June 1 memo doesn't work. So, and you just told me that you would have stuck with the June 1 memo if you'd prevailed in the district court. But since you lost in the district court, you said, okay, well, here's a new memo with new reasons to do the exact same thing that we wanted to do before. Well, again, we're not, we wouldn't be avoiding plaintiffs challenging the new memorandum. Plaintiffs can still challenge that in district court. And there's, there's simply nothing that this court can do with respect to the claims challenging the June 1st memorandum at this point. If this court was to find that the district court was correct in overturning that memorandum, then that memorandum has still been rescinded and replaced by the October 29th memorandum. And if the court was to disagree and find that the government was correct in its arguments defending the June 1st memorandum, that memorandum still wouldn't have any effect because it's been superseded and replaced by the October 29th memorandum. So there's simply nothing this, there's no case or controversy at this point with respect to the June 1st memorandum. Neither party has an interest at this point in defending or challenging the legality of that memorandum or defending the district or appealing the district court's order in joining that memorandum. And suppose to Judge Barksdale's first question, suppose that on remand, suppose we agreed with everything you're arguing, it goes back to the district court and the district court says, yeah, this hasn't actually cured my view of how section 1225 applies to the government's actions. The position of the Justice Department and the federal government today is that there would be no post-October 29 memo? That is, suppose you lose again in the district court, you're not going to change and have a new memo as soon as an appeal is noticed? Yeah, I'm not aware of any reason why there'd be another memorandum at that point. The memorandum issued last week is lengthy, addresses everything the district court set out before. It addresses some factors that in the briefing to this court, we argued that we don't believe the secretary necessarily was required to address, but he's now addressed them. Counsel, we want to get to the merits, but I do have one question. What was the delay? Why is it an October 29th memo and not an October 1st memo or a September 15th memo? You'll pardon me if I find it very suspicious and disappointing that not only is it an October 29th memo, but this motion was filed after four o'clock on the Friday before oral argument. Certainly you'll understand that the motion comes with some suspicion of gamesmanship. Yes, Your Honor. As laid out in the secretary's memorandum, and I know the court probably, the October 29th memorandum, I know the court probably hasn't had much of an opportunity to review that, but the secretary took seriously what he was trying to do in this memorandum, which is to reconsider all the evidence in the record. It's an extensive record. All of the issues raised in this litigation and other litigation with respect to MPP, he met with a host of stakeholders, state and local stakeholders from across the country and all that. And so I hate to interrupt you, but couldn't he have done that after the court ruled, the district court ruled in this case and said, okay, we get it. We're going to redo all of this and try to satisfy all of the legal concerns that were raised by the plaintiffs. And we're going to do this better and correctly so that there is no more litigation. Instead, there was nary a word about it, nothing in the briefing. And there's voluminous briefing in this case and Amici and then on October 29th, the very Friday before, you know, we get this memorandum, all of the things you're saying, my point is all of the things you're saying could have been done immediately after the district court ruled, but instead the course chosen was to notice an appeal. 
yes your honor i would just a couple points on that i know that the secretary is obviously a very busy person and this is not the only thing we're busy to and we've got a lot of stuff to read including in this case which we read only to be met with such a motion on like i say the friday eve of the hearing understood your honor i'd also note that a month ago we filed a motion with the court noting that the secretary had announced that he was intending to soon issue a new memorandum and asked to hold this appeal in advance and that motion was denied and plaintiffs opposed but that was our attempt to alert the court that this was likely coming soon and likely coming before argument just one other point on that motion i just note that in the alternative if the court finds that some aspect of this case is not moot then we still believe that it's appropriate to remand the apa claims the district court for further consideration and then we'd ask that this court stay whatever remains of this appeal in the interim so that the case is not bifurcated and not it can all be the legality of the challenges to the memorandum legality of the issue can be all assessed in one case for the convenience of the court and the parties on the merits if the court is you keep avoiding 12 25 you keep saying the apa the district court's ruling was based on two independent bases the apa and the violation of the statute that requires if you cannot detain these illegal aliens that they have to be returned to the contiguous country from which they unlawfully entered the united states and that's what the mpp is all about i just am concerned that you keep avoiding that and it's not subsumed within the apa yes your honor i believe they're intertwined and again the new memorandum addresses that issue and the that issue should be assessed in terms of addressing the the secretary's interpretation of the obligations of 12 25 and those interpretations are entitled to deference in the alternative if the court believes that that 12 25 issue is not moved and is separate again if the court we'd suggest that in that circumstance plaintiffs haven't offered any reason why the court couldn't hold that aspect of the case while the apa claims are what is the current status of implementing the mpp as adopted under the prior administration is anything being done yes your honor the government has undertaken extensive efforts it's in negotiations with mexico about what populations under what circumstances mexico would agree to take individuals back it's contracted for contracts to build temporary hearing facilities where mpp hearings previously took place at the cost of tens of millions of dollars a month so there's substantial efforts burdensome efforts going on that the agency is undertaking to re-implement mpp what has changed with the country of mexico and its position on mpp so i understand that mexico as late as january of this year had agreed to the mpp program so what changed between january and the district court's injunction implementing mpp requires mexico's ongoing agreement with the united states to accept certain individuals to remain temporarily there during their proceedings and under current negotiations with mexico they've expressed that they're not willing to take individuals back unless certain improvements are made to the program so they accepted 58 000 prior to january of 2021 and now their position is they'll accept zero their position is that they're willing to discuss with the united states at the moment the united states does not have the agreement of mexico to accept anyone can you help me understand what changed what changed your honor i don't agreed obviously and accepted 58 000 and i understand your answer is that well now they've their position has changed from 58 000 to zero and so my question is what changed why zero i'm not privy to the to the negotiations between 
our government the government in mexico with respect to what their what the discussions are about what has changed since then i know that in the declarations we filed with the district court on compliance the efforts to comply with the injunction that that the country of the government of mexico has represented that they're not currently willing to take individuals back unless some improvements are made to mpp and remember that enrollments in mpp declined significantly beginning in march or april of last year when the pandemic hit and dhs moved to using other authorities to to govern and manage individuals arriving at the border so enrollments declined significantly and then were suspended as you know in january when the new administration took over and so the the current administration after doing that and then telling representing new mexico the program was ended has had to engage in negotiations to try and gain mexico's approval to accept additional individuals who are returned and we take judicial notice of mexico's offering temporary visas to persons coming through mexico isn't that is that of record yet i'm not i'm not familiar with that not familiar with the government of mexico offering temporary visas to persons coming through mexico towards the united states border i'm not aware of what you're referring to your honor and i'm not sure how that would relate to mpp which is a specific statutory authority i'll simply ask if we can take judicial notice and you state you're not aware of it yes your honor i don't i'm not sure i know enough about what that is wait a minute there's a difference between i don't know enough and i'm not aware of it which is it i'm not aware of it your honor and so i don't know enough to say whether that's something it would be appropriate to take judicial notice that from from that i can't tell how that would necessarily be related to mpp in any way on the merits here if the court is inclined to reach the merits or believes that the the 12 25 issue is is should be resolved by this court the court should still reverse the district court's deeply flawed permanent injunction the district court's ruling on section 12 25 is an extraordinary intrusion into the authority and discretion of the department of homeland security with respect to immigration and foreign affairs what is the discretion as i understand it you either detain you return or you parole is that wrong well the department of security homeland security has discretion to use a range of authorities to deal with individuals arriving at the border the district court essentially read this as a binary choice it took the detention provisions there are detention provisions in section 12 25 that allow dhs to detain certain individuals it took those and it took the return authority in section 12 25 b2c and it read them in isolation to create a binary choice and said that because the statute only offers the government two options it's a violation of the statute not to return individuals who can't be detained because that's the only alternative we know that's not correct as your honor just noted the statute offers other options to the government for example in 8 usc 1182 d5 it provides dhs with the authority and discretion to parole individuals for humanitarian reasons or for any other reason the agency deems to be a significant public benefit now that the motions panel that heard the government's motion for a stay pending appeal acknowledged this acknowledged that and in part denied the state pending appeal because it said the injunction wasn't as onerous as the government represented it didn't require the government to detain or return everyone 
that the government also had the option discretion to parole individuals under eight u s c eleven eighty two d five and for individuals that fell under eight u s c section twelve twenty six had the option to release those individuals on bond or conditional parole and so if the agency has what is the parole procedure what's involved in making the parole decision it involves a range of factors and it is made on a case by case well I understand that but is there some proceeding some standard operating procedure to make this important decision of parole it's not just done in mass so what is the procedure well there are regulations governing it in eight u s c two twelve that provide a range of factors and things that an immigration official at the border can consider for example individuals who have particular vulnerabilities women who are pregnant and then there are also medical emergencies medical emergencies and then any and then a range of other factors that they can consider and it's up to the individual officer to determine whether a person is amenable to parole I know that this is not a parole case that plaintiffs in this case don't challenge parole the district court acknowledged that nothing about the migrant protection protocols the guidance implementing them or the June 1 memorandum ending the program says anything about how the agency will specifically use its parole authority it acknowledged the secretary acknowledged that he had detention and parole authority as alternatives but this the the June 1 memorandum didn't construe or guide how the agency will use its parole authority the district court acknowledged this at trial and said nothing about MPP terminating MPP creates any affirmative benefits and ask plaintiffs whether their challenge here wasn't really some sort of challenge to the agency's detention and parole policies plaintiffs waive that they said they're they're not challenging parole in this case survey or what sort of proceeding is conducted for example for the large number of recent illegal entries from from Haiti I think it was 30,000 or so what sort of proceeding is followed to determine whether they're seeking asylum or whether they simply are coming into this country because they want a better job what sort of proceeding is done for that and what sort of papers are they given in an attempt for them to come back for some sort of hearing later what's what's the procedure well it would depend somewhat on what in the agency's discretion what type of proceedings they elect to put the individuals in but generally there's some sort of initial screening interview to determine whether they have raised a credible claim of fear and if they and if the asylum officer determines that they have stated enough to have a valid fear claim based on some protected ground then they would be placed into further proceedings to assess that claim but I want to note with respect to individuals from Haiti again Mexico placed certain limits on the populations that were could be returned under MPP and so individuals from Haiti were never previously individuals that could be placed into MPP so of the various options the agency has for dealing with say an influx of individuals from Haiti MPP wouldn't even if it was operational now wouldn't be an option for those individuals thank you thank you mr. Ward you have four minutes of rebuttal time saved we will hear from mr. Wilson now and you have your 25 minutes allotted may please the court I'd like to begin by addressing the motions that this court's carried with the case briefly turn to the scope to the injunction under 1225 and the scope of the injunction 
and then address our arbitrary and capricious claims as well. I'd like to, there were several questions about, you know, the injunction, and I'd like to, I think Judge Barksdale asked about this, the injunction being itself disjunctive. That's exactly right. There are two conditions that have to be satisfied under the injunction. The first is compliance with the APA, and the second is not releasing individuals because of lack of detention capacity. The district court made findings of fact as to the detention capacity. It's as to the fact of the release because of the lack of detention capacity. Those findings of fact are supported both by the administrative record and evidence we introduced as part of the record on appeal. What I'd like to point out is that even though we had a full trial on the merits, there's effectively no evidence as to what the procedures are, how DHS is exercising its parole authority in any given case. What we do know both from the record and from the monthly reports that DHS has been filing is they're doing this. I believe in September on the order of 28,000 individuals were paroled pursuant to the 1182 authority. And we know from Jennings v. Rodriguez that once you're in a 1225 proceeding, Justice Alito's opinion says the express parole provision in 1182 implies that that is the only parole authority that exists once you're in a 1225 proceeding. To turn to the pending motions, I think Judge Oldham's hypothetical aptly illustrates why this case isn't moot. The states have a harm. That harm stems from the termination of the MPP. We have an injunction that addresses that harm. And that injunction is adverse to the United States, and the United States would like to be relieved of that injunction. To my lights, that's an Article III case of controversy. Counsel, do you believe that, your last statement, do you believe that the October 29th memo impacts in any way either the APA relief or the 1225 issue? Or do you think that neither one of them is impacted and that we should just go ahead and proceed? Your Honor, our position is the court should just go ahead and proceed. I think that two points I'd like to make. The first point is that the October 29th memo right now is not effective on its face. The October 29th memo says that it can't rescind MPP until such time as the injunction, until the injunction of the district court is vacated. Now, what they're trying to do is sort of bootstrap the fact that that could take effect in the future to get the vacater, which is, as Judge Oldham said, heads I win, tails I also win. That just would replace reversal by this court. The other point I'd like to make is that because it's not effective, I don't think it can affect the case right now. Should there be a remand at some point, which we don't think is appropriate, they might have the opportunity at that point to address those claims. But for present purposes, we don't think that the October 29th memorandum has any effect. I'd like to point out that my friend on the other side said that the June 1 memorandum was the, this was only the second memo. That's just not right. The DHS suspended enrollments in MPP on January 20th. It did so in a, I believe it was a two-line memo. 
when we got to when when the states challenge that and we got to we got to trial you know it's something of a pattern here a couple of days before that response was due they issue or issued the June memorandum you know I'd also like to point out your honor that on the eve of trial in this case they supplemented the administrative record to include DHS's DHS's own assessment of MPP which we had pointed out that they had not included in the administrative record several times the district court said that came perilously close to disturbing the presumption of regularity in these administrative proceedings and now here we are again on the on the eve of oral argument in this court and they've they've done the same thing yet again I think I think it that at least gives rise to the inference that something something is amiss here in terms of every time this case gets close to an inflection point the government issuing some sort of new memo or dropping some sort of surprise so in any event your honor we don't think that we don't think that the the October 29 memorandum does anything right now it the district court already vacated it I as we said in our papers I don't know what it means to rescind something that is vacated because as we explained their vacatur is itself is itself a rescission so it wasn't effective either way I think just assume that our court affirmed the district court judgment permanent injunction the government could then adopt a new basis for seeking to terminate MPP correct I think I think they can I look I think the in an APA case I think the government can go back and go back and revisit its reasons that's right I think in this particular case where there is an injunction the government is going to have to comply with both prongs of the injunction as I recall said the government is to proceed in good faith with implementing the decision by the district court and it didn't say the government can never give it another shot to set aside the MPP no that's absolutely right your honor I don't think we contend otherwise would it be the government would just change the date of its October 29 memorandum to something else no your honor I don't think that's quite right because what the the injunction requires them to proceed in good faith as to two things if they want to re-terminate the MPP the first is to comply with the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act and the second is the 1225 point which is to say they have to demonstrate that they're not not releasing people subject to 1225 because of lack of detention resources you know I think that the the real relief for the government here I think they have two options when they could they could win in this court which we obviously disagree with or they can go back to the district court and file file any any number of motions probably under probably under rule 60 saying look we've effectively complied with this we've effectively complied with this injunction we're not in fact we're not in fact detaining people simply because of lack of detention resources you know we would I might I don't know if I'm authorized to say what the state of Texas would do there specifically I expect I expect the states of Texas and Missouri would contest that we might we might want to get discovery to sort of fill out the records your honor on exactly how these parole decisions are being made whether they're actually being made on a case-by-case basis as opposed to on mass as the motions panel in this court said was clearly not appropriate 
Um, is there anything of which we can take judicial notice now about the government's either acting in good faith or not acting in good faith in conformity with the permanent injunction? Um, I, Your Honor, I think what this court could... I will say, Your Honor, there are pending proceedings in the district court where the states have argued that the government is not, in fact, complying with the injunction. Um, we're, we're basically saying that they're dragging, they're dragging their feet for all number of reasons. So that, that motion is pending in the district court, and it's been, it's been briefed in the district court. So we, we do not think as a descriptive matter that they are complying right now because MPP has not been re-implemented. Um, as, as we've pointed out, um, as we've pointed out and as the motions panel in this case recognized too, there are, there's at least some set, subset of individuals who can be subject to MPP even without, even assuming the, even assuming we need the, the United States needs the government of Mexico's consent, even assuming for some reason that consent is also not forthcoming, though I don't think the record reflects what has changed. There are some subset of individuals who are just encountered at a point, port of entry at the border and can be, um, can be not allowed to enter the United States in the first instance. So we're litigating the, we're litigating the scope of compliance with the injunction, and I think the court could, you know, that's in the record in the district court. The court could certainly could certainly review those papers. Counsel, do you is the is your position that we can review the October 29th memo, even though it, as you point out in the opposition, which I realized was filed on Monday yesterday, I guess, that um, it hasn't actually taken effect yet, or or is it we basically because it's not in effect yet, we it's not actually before us. I mean, I, I think it would be I think it would be strange for this court to review. I'm not I'm not sure I'm prepared to say that there's no way the court could. Um, you know, a, no district court has passed on it. Um, I I think it would I think it would be strange. I we are also evaluating that memo. I'm not sure that we have come to any firm conclusions. Um, I I just I think it would be odd for the court of appeals to pass on it in the in the first instance. Though I'm not sure I'm prepared to say that there's there's no way that could, that could happen. Um, anyway, Your Honor, while I, I have while I have a few minutes left, I would I would like to um, turn to the merits of the case. Um, we think there are ample facts supporting the injunction. Um, the district. Well, before you do that, I'd ask counsel for the government about supposedly Mexico offering temporary visas to persons passing through Mexico en route to enter the United States. Is there anything you can tell us about judicial notice we could take of that? And is it a, does it even have any bearing on this case? Um, Your Honor, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I don't know a whole lot more about that than my friend on the other side does. What I could say is if the court can, of course, generally take judicial notice of, of public documents, government records, things like that. Insofar, insofar as those exist, I would think that the court could take judicial notice of them. But you're not aware of any? Um, not, not, specific, not specifically, no, Your Honor. It's, I don't believe that's something that's presented in the record in this case. No, I don't think but, so. It's, but it's fairly I, recent. Insof insofar as there are you know, public records, I think it is a general rule that the Court of Appeals can take, notice, can take judicial notice of those things. Um, so I'd, I'd like to turn to the to the injunction and then talk very briefly about arbitrary and capricious review. Um, we think the district court should, injunction should be affirmed because at base it rests on a finding of fact. That finding of fact is reviewable for clear error. Um, 
that says that termination of MPP caused appellants to release aliens subject to mandatory detention under Section 1225 because of a lack of detention resources. I'd point the court to several places in the record to support that. At ROA 699, ROA 2707, those are first. The first one of those is a footnote on CBP's publicly available website that says continued detention of a migrant who has more likely than not demonstrated credible fear is not in the interest of resource allocation or justice. They subsequently took this off of their website, I assume because they believed it was incorrect, but it's in the record and the district court credited it. And again, this is another place where there's just no evidence in the record to the contrary. We had a full trial on the merits. The other side certainly could have come down with someone discussing how parole authority works, someone discussing why this isn't right, someone to testify to say, you know, we're not paroling people because of lack of detention resources. None of that's in the record, so I don't see how there could possibly be clear error on that point. I'd also point out that, and this is information that's just not within the state's control, but the district court asked repeatedly at trial for the defendants to offer evidence of their detention capacity, right? So if the court has reviewed the trial transcript, Judge Kaczmarek asks several times, well, you know, what's the denominator? How many people are being detained? What is your detention capacity? None of this stuff's in the record simply because our friends on the other side didn't put it in the record. So there are lots of sort of places like that, and we think that that lack of evidence means that it's extremely difficult to find that the district court clearly erred. The district court also got the law right. If you read Section 1225, there are a procession of shalls. We know both from this court's precedent and the Supreme Court's precedent that shall usually means must. In particular, in statutory schemes where shall is in contraposition to may, we can be quite sure, and I'm thinking of the Kingdomware case, the Maine Community Health cases from the Supreme Court in the last few years, we can be particularly sure that when Congress uses shall and then uses may separately very close in the same statutory framework, that the shall really means shall. So we think they're obliged to detain most people in 1225 proceedings. Now, they also, of course, have the discretionary capacity to return, and the district court recognized, as the motions panel pointed out, that they do have other options too. As Judge Barksdale, you pointed out, I think it's exactly right that once an alien is in a 1225 proceeding, there are three options. You can detain pursuant to the statute. Those aliens can be returned to Mexico, or there's the 1182 authority, and the 1182 authority is just extremely narrow. It's on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit. As the district court recognized at Note 11 when Congress passed IRIRA, it specifically narrowed this parole authority because there was concern that DHS's predecessor agencies were using the parole authority in sort of an expansive way to get around congressionally mandated detention. Precisely the same here. As I mentioned earlier, I think their report, their last report to 
the district court suggested that something on the order of thirty thousand aliens had been paroled pursuant to this authority just in december it's extremely difficult to imagine how that's how that's how every one of the we're not strictly speaking challenging any any individual parole determination i i think it would it there might be reasons why we can't do that but it is extremely difficult to imagine that every one of those is on a case-by-case basis for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit we think is the district court found and is the record amply supports that it's much more likely that they're simply doing it because of lack of detention resources um is there anything in the record about the percentage of persons entering the country illegally that seek asylum as opposed to other bases for wanting to come to the united states such as a better life or a better job um your honor i'm certainly i'm certainly aware that the number of individuals who seek asylum has increased over time um i believe to my recollection they have sort of finally walked through some of this in the october 29 memorandum itself um i think i think the answer is twofold first the the number of people seeking asylum has increased significantly um but by the same token there's there is evidence in the record that a substantial portion of those asylum claims in fact perhaps the vast majority are not ultimately granted um i i'm doing this from memory so please forgive me if i don't have it quite right but i think the answer is something like only 14 percent of asylum of those asylum claims are ultimately granted um so you know i i think your honor that speaks to even even when someone claims asylum i think that to some degree speaks to you know who is bringing an asylum claim and who is seeking a better life so to speak or as an economic migrant well i'm i'm not referring to the october 29 memorandum i'm referring to the record in this case um and the the approximate percentage of persons seeking asylum is there anything like that in the record i know your honor i know that the record reflects that the number of asylum claims have have increased over time um they're much higher than they they're much higher than they were even just even just a few years ago um i i'm not sure that i can remember the precise percentages your honor and i wouldn't want to hazard a guess um absent knowing i was correct um i'd like to quickly address um the arbitrary and capricious claims as well um as the as the motions panel in this case determined and i'm not sure i can say it a lot a lot better than that um the june one memorandum failed to consider um many of the relevant many of the relevant things it's required to do um it failed to consider mpp's benefits um the most the most obvious example of this is dhs's own assessment of mpp's benefits and that's contained at the record at 2707 this is what was supplemented into the record on the eve of trial um in that document uh dhs describes mpp is very effective describes it as a cornerstone of its of its policy um and says in particular that that in the areas where mpp was implemented um they saw a significant a significant decrease in the in the number of people attempting to illegally enter the united states so as the record sort of reflects there are push and pull factors here um the ability the ability to um 
to seek asylum and remain in the United States is a significant pull factor. DHS determined that MPP was very effective at addressing that. The memorandum also completely fails to address the state's interests. I think it's fair to say that the United States, since we challenged the January 20th memorandum, I think it's fair to say that DHS and the appellants must have been on notice of the state's reliance interests because in our lawsuit that we filed before the June memorandum was issued, we put them on notice that we thought we had reliance interests, and those reliance interests relate to the cost to the states that we talk about in the standing section of our brief where we talk about the cost related to issuing driver's licenses, cost to health care, cost to education, things like that. So they knew we had these reliance interests and simply ignored them. The closest that that memorandum comes to getting at those points is saying something to the effect of localities and border communities or something to that effect. That's obviously not the state's interests. Those are subdivisions. You're arguing that separate from the notice provision. Didn't you also have a provision that requires the federal government to notify and engage Texas before there's a change in policy? Yes, that's right, Your Honor. And the motions panel pointed that out. We have not briefed that extensively in this court simply because the district court didn't rely on it. This court can obviously affirm for any grounds fairly presented by the record, but it's not something that the district court relied on. To my recollection, the district court said, well, by the time I'm entering judgment in this case, that agreement had expired in any event. We certainly don't disagree with the motions panel conclusion that that's an independent basis that the appellants in this case should have considered. In any event, Your Honor, we also think that the June 1 memo reaches arbitrary conclusions. A couple of examples, one, and the motions panel pointed these out as well, one is the in absentia removal rate. Well, it says a 44% in absentia removal rate is high. They said that raises questions. We think that violates State Farm in itself because it's the agency's job to answer the questions, not to say something raises questions. But in any event, the in absentia removal rate in non-MPP cases is often very similar. So we think that that's an arbitrary conclusion itself. I think at trial, my friend on the other side said, well, this is not quite the right comparator or something to that effect. Of course, since this is an APA case under the Chenery Principle, the agency's actions have to be evaluated on the reasons they gave at the time. Sort of post hoc lawyer argument doesn't work. We saw that from Regents. Your Honor, I see I've only got about a minute and a half left. I'd like to quickly conclude by noting this. Both the motions panel of this court has completely evaluated this case, and the Supreme Court did too. They filed for an emergency stay in the Supreme Court. Of course, for the Supreme Court to grant a stay, part of that test is a likelihood of success in the merits. The Supreme Court told us exactly why the June 1 memorandum is arbitrary and capricious. It gave us pin sites to its opinion in Regents that tells us why. That's very closely in line with this court's motions panel. The other thing I'd like to point out is the Supreme Court specifically spoke to the injunction too. 
what the supreme court said about the injunction was that nothing in nothing in this court's nothing in the supreme court's opinion should be construed to alter the construction given to the injunction by the court of appeals what we can infer from that is the supreme court looked closely at the injunction decided there was not a likelihood of success on the merits of on the merits of that appeal you know i certainly wouldn't mean to suggest that the supreme court's opinion on a motions panel is binding on this court but it certainly does suggest that the supreme court gave this case a close look and decided that there was at least at least for purposes of likelihood of success on the merits nothing amiss here i see i'm just about of time out of time if the court has no further questions all right thank you mr wilson mr ward you have uh four minutes of rebuttal time thank you your honor i want to start by just correcting something about uh the status of the june 1 the october 29th memorandum so this is in the secretary's october 29th memorandum at page four he says effective immediately i hereby supersede and rescind the june 1 memorandum so that part of the october 29th memorandum is effective immediately as the secretary says and so the the june 1 memorandum is gone regardless of what happened so all this court could do with respect to the apa challenges and claims to the june 1 memorandum is issue an advisory opinion if the court finds the district court was right to invalidate it doesn't matter because it's been superseded by the october 29th memorandum if the just if this court overturns the district court on that still the june 1 memorandum wouldn't return so there'd be no legal effect to that ruling on the merits of the understand a civil procedure question so when a district court issues an injunction the party that is upset with the injunction is the recipient of the injunction can either win on appeal and say the injunction was unlawful or can go to the district court under rule 60b and say we've substantially complied with the injunction i don't understand how the government can say well we would like to get the benefit of the vacature of the injunction by saying that we have voluntarily stopped doing the thing that we were enjoined from doing well we've voluntarily complied with what the district court said we had to do and what plaintiffs asked for us to do here they said they asked that the secretary consider additional factors and 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 put additional consideration into his memorandum before deciding what to do with mpp and he's now done that and so in the proper way to do that to go to the district court under rule 60b or to appeal right and so we believe that it's appropriate now that we have appealed and as was done in the innovation law lab case when there's a change during the course of litigation for the appellate court to vacate and remand for further proceedings right but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily follow like most principles of civil procedure when you when you turn it backwards they don't necessarily follow the same the same rules right so in innovation law labs the district court had said don't do mpp and so when the government decided and followed a file a suggestion of mootness in the supreme court and said okay great we agree we're not going to do mpp then the respondents in that case came in and said we agree like we're all now we're all in the same boat we all agree that there's not going to be any mpp and therefore all of the stuff that had gone on in the ninth circuit was moot right so the the outcome to the mootness question and the munsingware vacature hinges largely on the fact that the respondents had come in and said you're right we've you've redressed all of our injuries everyone's there's nothing else to do here but this if you turn it around and the district court says we're i'm ordering you to do x and y and z then you're still under the obligation of that injunction until you either get the injunction vacated by the court of appeals or you get the injunction set aside by the district court under rule 60b i don't understand how you can as as your friends on the other side have put it bootstrap the vacature 
with your own voluntary cessation. But that's not the way injunctions normally work, is it? Well, we're not voluntarily ceasing. The only thing that's ceasing is the June 1 memorandum. The Secretary has again decided that it's in the interests of DHS and the United States to terminate MPP. And so that's the June, there's no scenario in which the June 1 memorandum comes back, right? So if plaintiffs want to challenge the new memorandum, they're free to do that. And that should be assessed in the context of that decision, in the context of the agency's current announcement with respect to MPP. But there's simply nothing left of the June 1. There's no case or controversy remaining with respect to the June 1 memorandum. Can you help me understand, think about like a notice and comment case, like an APA 553 case where the agency promulgates a notice of proposed rulemaking and says, here's what we'd like to do. They receive a bunch of comments. They respond to the comments and they forget to respond to like 10 of them. And so some of the people who had filed comments and didn't have their comments responded to in the final rule petition for review of the final rule. And they say, the agency has acted arbitrary and capriciously. It hasn't considered the comments that we offered in the NPRM. And so while the case is pending, say in the DC circuit on the petition to review the final rule, the agency comes in and says, well, here's our response to the 10 comments. We'd like to file a motion to supplement the administrative record. Here's what we'd like to say to these 10 people. And this moots the entire case because we've now responded to all 10 of them. Do you think that would be moot? Depends, Your Honor, but it could be. If the agency has addressed the deficiencies that were earlier addressed. So then what in your view is the prohibition on post hoc rationale? Because I thought, actually, I'm surprised by your answer. I thought you were going to say absolutely not because there's this bedrock principle reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in I don't know how many cases and the DC circuit and even more that the agency can't just come in and rationalize what it did the first time by offering new reasons after the petition for review is filed. And so I think I misunderstood your question. So in that certain in your hypothetical, the agency would be offering further explanation for its earlier decision. Yeah. And suppose like they do it in a instead of they realize they couldn't do it in their briefs on the petition for review in front of the Court of Appeals. So they they file like a motion to supplement the administrative record and they say here's 200 more reasons why we agree with what we did the first time and we're just responding to all the stuff that we now recognize we should have done the first go round. Well, I think that's categorically different, I think, for the reason you just pointed out. So this the October 29th memorandum is not further explanation of the June 1 memorandum. It's an entirely new agency decision. It's based on going to be based on a new and different agency record. It has additional considerations and it expressly rescinds the June memorandum. So the agency is this is a separate agency action. The agency's secretary didn't say I'm further explaining these findings in my earlier memorandum and saying the secretary said he's rescinding that memorandum, doing additional consideration, compiling an additional record, additional evidence and issuing a new decision based on that. So this strike is two separate things. Is the secretary saying I agree the June 1 memo was unlawful or is the secretary saying no, 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 I think the June 1 memo was lawful, but here's some more reasons why I'd like to do exactly the same thing I did in June 1st. So the government's position is that the June 1 memorandum was defensible, but this is not the secretary's new decision is not further explanation for that and he's not doing exactly the same thing he did before. Is he agreeing that the June 1 memo was unlawful? No, Your Honor, but he's elected to follow what the district court said and consider additional factors and consider additional evidence and decide anew 
what he thinks the agency should do with respect to MPP and is elected in a new, completely independent decision to terminate the program. And so but that's as you sit here today, because he has not agreed that the June 1 memo was unlawful, the government continues to believe that the June 1 memo was lawful. The government believes the June 1 memo is defensible, but that point is moot at this point. I, I'm so. sorry, can I, is it, I understand it was defensible, you in fact defended it. My question is, is, does the government believe that the June 1 memo was a lawful exercise of government power? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Any other questions? Right. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ward uh, and Mr. Wilson. The case will be, uh, we have your arguments and the case will be submitted. The next case on the docket is Ross Dress for Less Incorporated versus ML Development LP.